Hey, welcome to Death Sentence for this week. And this is the uh, Patreon episode, although we will be putting it out for, for the people. Um, because I, I think, A, it's video games, so, you know, nice and popular for people. We're not doing some, like, deep dive into some Marxist tome. It's going to be video games all the way. Uh, so everyone will love that. And, um, yeah, and you know, I, I want to be respectful to our guests and not just hide them behind a paywall. Uh, if you are listening to this on just regular iTunes or whatever, then we're at Patreon or Patreon, Patreon.com forward slash Death Sentence, and you can give us money and hear us talk more about stuff. Uh, and that's really good, and you'll be a good person for doing it. Uh, Langdon is still in recovery. We wish him well. Um, those of you who haven't heard the previous episode, he did drink. Uh, what? Well, Paramedics called a heroic quantity of diesel fuel in order to uh, turn himself into a train so he could marry another train and give birth to train children. I think that was his, his ultimate goal. Uh, and something about causing the third impact. Uh, the, his texts to me are very scrambled towards the end. There's a lot of diesel fuel in his system. Just So, Godspeed, Langan. And um, we're on the line, we're on Discord. The, the, the gamers chat thing uh, with Jamie. He is the author of Marx at the Arcade. And it's a book, obviously, literary podcast, about the intersection between video games and uh, labor issues, Marxism, Assassin's Creed comes up a lot. And... Um, it's good. It's out on... Uh, remind me the publisher again. So the book comes out with Haymarket. Oh, okay. It's on Haymarket. Uh, and, and it's... it's oh, so go ahead. Put it out in the UK in the next couple of weeks. couple of weeks. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll tweet a uh, links to Haymarket books. And they're a good press. They do good stuff. They're up there with like Verso and Pluto and people like that for publishing generally very good books on important leftist subjects like gaming. So before we talk about the games side of things, uh, why don't we just introduce you and your previous work, uh, the the call center book, for example. Um, yeah, just give, give, give the folks home like a general introduction to you and your work so far. Um, so I'm, I'm a researcher uh, and I do research mainly on, on different kinds of work. Um, so I've spent some time when I did my PhD working in a call center uh, and mm -hmm. trying to organize in the call center um, and then trying to write up the story both of my time working there but also uh, working with other people who work there to to bring some of their stories to life um, and so for me what's interesting is is you know why do we work you know what do we do when we work who do we work for um, because I think through looking at these things that unfortunately most of us have to spend all of our life doing, um, it can tell us a lot about society. Um, mm. And so, you know, some of the jobs like call center work uh, are not the most fashionable things, but, you know, so many people do this kind of work every day. Yeah. I mean, I've worked in a call center a few times in my life and it's, yeah, it's been dispiriting work. Some Sometimes it's even been for companies like charities doing good things, but it's just, it's a real grind. And every time I wished I could have like organized something, but you know, being like a 15 year old and anarchist teen, I didn't want to like organize because 
not organizing things isn't cool. But uh, yeah, if I ever had to go back to that kind of thing, I'd be straight to nearest IWW member. Um, yeah, it's really tough work. And um, yeah, work is, it, it's something that we've talked about kind of a lot on this show because, you know, being of the left in certain ways, you know, it's, it's the most, it's a very vital thing. And there's not enough talking about it both in uh, non-fiction, which where you're coming from, and in like literary fiction, no one is writing about work at all. And it's like massively to the detriment of working people everywhere. So yeah, well done for talking about work. And so one of the, the cool things that I was kind of reminded of reading Marx at the Arcade was um, the whole concept of workers' inquiry as being like really integral to like Karl Marx and Engels's project where they would like get reports from factories and go to factories. And um, so can you maybe just for people who haven't like gone deep into capital and stuff, can you just maybe explain the concept of workers inquiry and why it's important, why it continues to be important? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, not trying to get too much into the kind of, uh into the into the weeds on it um but we often think of what marx did was about writing capital um and you know capital as the name kind of might suggest is really about how capitalism works um and so often we get this reading of marx of like trying to understand you know big economic forces and dynamics in society and so on um but one of the things he did towards the end of his life um which was a bit different from from writing things like capital was he sent out um, 101 questions, which, you know, I'm a social scientist. I probably would have recommended a, a, a few a few less questions. Mm -hmm. um, but he put this out in a newspaper and hoped that workers would, uh, would respond to the questionnaire uh, and tell him about what their working lives were like. So what he was really interested in were things like, what do you do when you're at work? Who tells you what to do? Um, what kind of machinery do, do you work with? And I think it's a kind of lost part of Marxism in a way that what Marx is really trying to do with workers' inquiry is position workers, not only as the people who can understand their work, but also as the people who, who ultimately have the power to transform it. So it's a kind of bottom-up kind of version of, of Marxism, of starting from the workplace and starting with people's experience. And then it kind of gets lost for quite a long time um, as a kind of approach. And then is mainly taken up by Italians in the 60s and 70s. Hmm. Um, and this is the kind of research that I like to do um, because it's research a bit like the call center project, not just writing a book about call centers, but trying to think what what organizing looks like today. Um, so it's both a kind of research method, but also a tool for organizing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. With, with workers inquiry, I mean, work is often like, opaque even like the workers doing it nowadays i, I think um yeah capital has kind of caught on that if we actually talk about our jobs then we might actually like raise our consciousness a little like i don't know what anyone else and my work gets paid from the boss to like my peers and i, I don't know why decisions get made uh, there's like not a lot i could tell you about my own job that i've been doing for months and I'm pretty sure that's kind of a um, that's kind of intentional 
on the part of the people upstairs. So, um, yeah, it, it would be very good for you know, the greater labor movement if we could get back to actually getting some like intelligence on this stuff, actually getting the, the facts. Because, yeah, work is, when I actually think about it, it's how like almost Kafka-esque this stuff is. Like, I, I don't know who my boss is. <laughs> no. Like I'm sure I could look up in like company's house or something and find out who's the CEO, but I don't, yeah, I don't even like know what the structure is or how stuff gets done or paid or maybe I'm just ignorant. No, bit. but I think this is the experience most people have at work today um, hmm. is we work for organizations where it doesn't make sense what the people above us are doing. You know, we may work with people on the other side of the world that we never actually meet. You know, we rely on, uh, on other people's work that we never see, um, which in a way I think is why video games, the video games industry is such an interesting one. Mm, yeah. um, you know, think about when you turn on, turn on a console, like how many bits of work had to come together for that moment to be possible mm. and how, you know, along each part of the supply chain, no one, the people who make video games have no idea what the conditions are like in the factory that make the, the hardware, the consoles and the controllers and so on. Yeah, um, I think that's a lot of people's experience of work is that it's it's isolating. You know, mm. you don't you don't get a sense of how everything fits together, um, which you know Marx talks about as alienation. Hey, oh yeah, you know that really? we don't we don't get a sense of how what we're doing kind of leads to us having a roof over our heads and food to eat and so on. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of semi-intentional on the part of capitalists themselves, and um, so. You've kind of touched on it briefly there, but what drew you to video games for this particular book? Um, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, my dad is a, uh, a kind of uh, writes software. Um, so I grew up a lot around computers as a kid. Um, and it's one of the kind of stories that I try and tell in the book is like, you know, those experiences of, uh, of playing video games and how that fits into like a longer history of uh, of the kind of growth of the industry. Um, and when it finally, when, when I thought about writing the book, I was kind of umming and ahhing about, you know, of all the things I could be writing about, should I write a book about Marxism and video games? The answer uh, is yes. The answer is of course, yes. Um, and luckily the, the kind of wave of organizing in the video games industry happened at the same time. Um, mm, yes. And so I thought actually there's a political, there's a political reason to write the book. Um, and we had a book launch, uh, yesterday in London where you know I had some of the game workers who've been organizing come and speak um, and it feels like this is the right time to be uh, to be making these arguments and be talk talking about these things mm, um, definitely the yeah. right is very interested in video games mm, very much uh, so yeah and has you know made quite a lot out of uh, intervening around them mm. um, so the book is kind of an argument for that really that the left should be interested in video games it doesn't mean you yeah. have to play them but you should at least be interested in them no, I, I think the left could stand to benefit from like uh, always just waste all our time on video games, just like I do. Just ruin your your time and your life and your attention span by video games. Get stuck in games like Sekiro, which just like offer no joy at all and just, <laughs> just yeah, and repeat endless loops of uh, life and death in, in Sekiro all day. I think that's what what's what we need. That's how the rev's going to happen. Um. So yeah, where. So give us a little background for people who maybe aren't so into like the the game behind games, the meta games of the video game industry. How where did this uh, like 
re really recent um, push for like unionization, collectivization, even in in video games, come from? Um, so this this kind of recent wave of organizing um, really started last year. Um, there was a there's a big games conference in the U.S. called uh, GDC Game Developers Conference, um, and a few people had got together to talk about having a panel on what do unions in the video games industry look like. Um, and I think if you've been following the tech worker organizing recently in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think there's a That's lot of overlap on, that on the show. Quite a fair oh, bit. Okay, brilliant. Um, and so I think there's a lot of overlap. You know, there are a lot of friends who you know, have shared stories about their organizing at Google or Amazon or, or, or whatever it is. Um, and then I think what's been most amazing about the organizing is so they tried to to have this panel on, on organizing in the video games industry. And there's a kind of employers association um, called the IGDA, which then tried to shut down uh, this kind of panel on unions and did such a bad job of it that it's almost like a textbook way of how like not to uh, to like people Streisand effect kind of thing. Exactly. So now everyone in the industry knows that unions are a thing and that the bosses don't want you to be part of them, which is like the best promotion you could kind of possibly have for, for starting. Oh, yeah. I should do um, that in my company. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, find some way to get the boss to tell everyone they shouldn't do something. It's like the perfect way to get them to do it. <laughs> um, and so following that, there's been all these local groups that have sprung up. Um, and I have spent a lot of time with the group in the UK. Um, you know, I met them when they were one person, the kind of the first person to get involved and have been kind of helping, helping with their organizing along the way. So a lot of the book is a kind of retelling of, of their story of, of organizing in this new industry. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there is what, there's one other thing that I think is worth saying on this, which is there is like a history of video games of having resistance you know, over many decades, which I think we can only really make sense of the organizing now by placing it within that longer trajectory um, mm. of kind yeah, of hacking cultures uh, and so on. It's not like this has come out of nowhere. Mm. Um, it's been building for a long time. Yeah, and kind of the hacking culture is kind of these days given birth to things like Bitcoin like and uh, Anonymous and uh, some very reactionary even straight up fascist stuff like there's a lot of like near reactionary people like um curtis yavin and uh i forget the guy who came up with rocker's basilisk but he's uh, not a nice guy <laughs> yeah. um yeah that it's uh does it it now has gone in a very reactionary direction but um yeah as, as you say it's that kind of libertine uh, aesthetic to it was baked in from the start it's like at a, a place like Atari, and um, which was the big games company for de like a decade or so before you know ET the game, which comes up in here, of course. Um, yeah, and I guess it is people kind of rediscovering that lineage and like wanting freedom again after having a very like uh, libertarian kind of Randian capitalist. Uh, feel to the video game industry and that kind of brings us on to things like the conditions in the industry themselves like the overwork and crunch uh, so what what is crunch and why should we be concerned about it if you like 
a video game player, why should you care about crunch? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, you know, that's a really, uh, it's a really great question. I mean, I think the first thing is to say that crunch isn't like a particularly, um, it's not something limited just to the video games industry. Um, but working very, very long hours is something that happens in many different kinds of industries. Um, mm. And it's something that Marx was very concerned about when he wrote about the length of the working day. Um, is that in a sense, crunch in the video games industry is just, it's a very traditional form of exploitation, which is mm. if you get someone to work 100 hours a week, but you pay them for 40 hours a week, you as the boss do pretty well out of that equation because yeah. you get loads of free work. And I mean, the main reason why it happens in the video games industry is because, you know, you want a video game to come out at a particular time. You know, you build marketing for it, you get it in at the holidays or whatever it is. And over time, lots of video games have ended up being made with overwork towards the end because it's difficult to measure how long it will take a game to, to be finished. Um, lots of workers are very passionate about making games. So you can kind of say, you know, don't you want this to be really good and so on. But it's happened so much that now managers, in effect, cost in crunch as part of the process. So you know there's no point giving yourself an extra month if you know you can get that time for free by pushing people to really, really overwork. Um, and there's a, there's a story that one of the game workers that we um, have been organizing within in the UK who went through a period of this crunch for like a couple of months where he was working you know, 70, 80, 90 hours a week. Um, you know, he wasn't seeing his friends, he wasn't seeing his family, he was like sleeping at work and so on. And then at some point, one of the managers was like, Do you know what, this game's not going to make the money we thought it would, we're just going to cancel it. And so he'd like poured his life, you know, working weekends, eating pizza at the office and all these kinds of things to then have somebody who was crunching the numbers go, actually, do you know what, this isn't going to work, we're just going to, mm. we're going to throw it all down the drain. So, you know, why should people care about it? You know, we should care about the conditions under which things are made that we enjoy. You know, yep. our Uber driver should be properly paid. The person serving us food in a restaurant should get a fair share of uh, of the money we pay for the food. You know, it's the same with video games. Um, if video games are made by people who are overworked, who don't have a say in what's happening, you know, it's not going to result in the kind of the kind of work in society that we want to live under. Um, you know, I think is. You know, if we have to pay 40, 50 pounds for a video game, some of that should go towards people not having to work weekends, eh? Damn right. And um, just because a lot of our listenership is in the US, why has Britain become a like global hub of video games? And for a very long time, too. It's been like, you know, we've had, we invented Lara Croft, we invented Grand Theft Auto. There's probably a ton more I'm forgetting. Why, why Britain exactly? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a kind of one of those historical peculiarities that we have with the UK of like, it's a very, very small country and shouldn't have a video games industry the size that it does. I mean, I think we can see a lot of this stuff is like video games industries spring up around the combination of, uh, of, of places where there is military hardware, um, mm -hmm. so military computers that, you know, are being used to plan uh rocket trajectories and all these kinds of things so you have the availability of hardware and then universities that had mainframes where people could experiment with these. so both in the us in the uk and in in, in japan as well 
the kind of support of the state, both through education and through the military, has provided the kind of conditions under which a, uh, an industry can grow. Um, one of the interesting things is, you know, if uh, like me, you you kind of have an interest in what uh, the ruling class thinks about uh, strategic industries and so on. The Tory party from 2008 onwards saw the video games industry as being the solution to the economic crisis in the UK. Um, nice. That's so they a, said these yeah. are the first green shoots. This is where loads of money is going to be made. And so in the UK, if you set up a video games company, you can pay almost no tax um, oh, because it's seen as like, you know, you're bringing job or, 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 or whatever it is. Um, and so it's very easy to run a games company here, um, which means there are something like three, three and a half thousand video games companies in the UK. Wow. Jeez. Um, which is quite a lot. Yeah, damn right, it's a lot. I, I wouldn't have thought there'd be that many in like the United States. But um, yeah, I, see, I was always told, and this is probably like a, a very um, libertarian Silicon Valley mentality myth, but the reason we have so many great video game developers in the UK is because we have like, you know, in the US, they they grew up on like Nintendo NES is and uh, Sega Master Systems. But over here, we grew up on uh, ZX Spectrums and Amigas and Ataris. And when, like, systems you got like almost code to be able to do anything with. So a certain percentage of people learned to actually create video games instead of just like consuming the cartridges. And they ended up establishing their own companies, like, um, was it like Ocean and the people who made Dizzy and all those like yeah. Spectrum games? But um, yeah, as you say, it's probably got a lot more to do with the fact we've got a an oversized military infrastructure <laughs> in this country. Like we're we're batting way above our, our level for in terms of military like stuff. Um, that's a whole other rant because I got a whole military background almost, and um, and yeah, we the Tories have just dropped a hell of a lot of money on this stuff in the yeah. in the hope that it would yeah it would somehow come back to people but it hasn't because of austerity um yeah you're, you're probably much much closer to the truth than the kind of rah rah we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps myth yeah i mean i think there's always a a kind of temptation to believe this stuff of like oh it's just down to like creativity and british people consuming culture differently and so on i mean i think you know if you look at some of these these kind of big famous British companies that are established, they're able to be established because of the, you know, the tax conditions, because, you know, education, having free education meant lots of people could get into to write code. Um, mm. and, but there becomes this like, you know, it's like a founder's myth, isn't it? Like the entire British video games industry was made in people's garages and so on. Yeah. Um, and I think that gives a kind of, uh, a, a different sense of what video games companies are like today is I think they'd like that image, you know, where kind of young upstart companies and so on. Um, but then you look at, you know, some of the large companies today with kind of hundreds of millions of, uh, of investment and so on. These are not bedroom companies. You know, these are our capitalist firms that seek to make money. You know, that, that's what they're concerned with, not making the kind of newest, coolest game. Yeah, so we'll talk about some games themselves in a little minute, but uh, we're going to break for some music now. So uh, there's a band that I just turned up on Bandcamp, 
They're called Warforged, which sounds like it could be a video game. Uh, they're from Chicago, Illinois, and they're like almost a super group. Uh, like they've got a core to the group, but like every song has people on it from like Nile, Obscura, Artificial Brain, who are great, um, Through the Eyes of the Dead, uh, Gorguts, Dysrhythmia, Artificial Brain again, Cynic. They're in great bands. So they're just, they're like a rap group who, who keep having people guest on their, on their songs. Uh, and they've come out with a album called Voice. And it's like very big, clean, progressive death metal. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very epic and it could go pretty well in most video games, I think. So we're going to play a track off that album called Eat Them While They Sleep. Just don't know what that means, but it's, it's kind of cool. And um, yeah, you can go to the Bandcamp. There'll be a link in the show notes, and do check them out because they're, you know, they're not like down, dirty, gross, recorded on a cassette tape kind of thing. They're like big, professional sounding, but they still hit hard. So yeah, give them a go. This is Warforged. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
so that was Warforged with Eat Them While They Sleep. Um, maybe maybe you're into that. Maybe you prefer more like gross, grimy stuff with like a picture of a dead body on the cover or something. But you know, whatever. So still here with uh, the author of Marks at the Arcade, and I want to just talk about video games because that's fun to do. Um, so you talk a lot in this book about Assassin's Creed Unity. Is it Unity? No, it's not Unity. It's the other one. It's the newer one. The London one. Yes, which the one London is? one. Victorian London, which is Syndicate, I think. Syndicate, right. That's it. I, I, I kind of gave up on the Assassin's Creed games a, a, a while ago, probably before Black Flag. I think my last one was that American one where you're like a uh, native yeah, yeah. guy. Yeah, that was kind of fun, but I, I got sick of the, the lore and all the time travel stuff and the story is kind of ridiculous eh? it is absolutely ins- yeah i i don't even know what they do what the story could be nowadays because like the story ended on the one i last played <laughs> and there's like seven more installments and a new one comes out every year and it just gets more stupid and huge and the map is the size of wales now and yeah i don't even know what's going on with the new ones but um why did you why did you pick that one to focus on uh, so I picked that one uh, because Marx is in the game. Um, oh, yeah, yes. So it felt like, you know, a kind of uh, a moment you couldn't miss if you were going to write a book about Marxism and video games. Because, hmm. um, you know, obviously Marx had nothing to say about video games. because. But he, he did want um, to reduce the size of uh, breasts in video games. That was an important part of uh, Capital Volume 5. Ah, of course. Think, yeah, you you should know this, really. Part I Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, he was an avid chess player, of course, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, which was the gamers of their day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, when he finished the manuscript of Capital, he went and played a game of chess. Not clear whether he won it or not, but you know. Um, and so, w- what's interesting for me about the moment um, with Marx in the game um, is that you you're asked to help him steal some factory records. Um, so when we were talking about inquiry earlier on, is the assassins take part in a kind of version of inquiry with Marx. So it seems like quite a nice jump off point to talk about, you know, unfortunately, you know, Marx didn't have these kind of twin assassins with hidden blades to go and steal factory records, you know. That we know of. Well, you know, he read them in the House of Lords reports, which is like a way less exciting thing. But maybe he did also have some secret ones. Um, That would be cool. But it's nice because it gives, you know, it gives the reader, if you're a fan of video games and you don't know much about Marx, it's like a jumping off point to talk about, you know, what did Marx really mean when he was talking about this kind of stuff? Um, Mm. And I also think, you know, games that tackle London in the throes of industrial revolution have, you know, it's interesting to kind of reflect on like, what do they put in and what do they not? Yeah. Um, And how are these stories told? Do you think the... Assassin's Creed Syndicate generally does a good job of portraying London at that time and portraying industrialization. Uh, well, yes and no, I think. Um, you know, it's obviously told through this kind of ridiculous story of like going back in time through your ancestors' genes, um, which is a bit kind of jarring for like an Engels-type conditions of the working class in London. Um, but what I think is interesting is like they do show they do show like different struggles that workers were going through at the time, you know, conditions in the factory and so on, um, which can give people a kind of glimpse of uh, of what different struggles look like 
uh, elsewhere. The problem with many video games, of course, is that you see it through a first person perspective where you can change the world just as an individual, um, mm. which is obviously a problem with lots of games. Yeah, that kind of individualistic, even when you're in a, a group like the Assassins or an army or something, you, you're still, the world revolves around you in every single way. Exactly. You, you make all the big things. And um, are, are there any other games that are that are woke that are, that are that are good that are good, show good praxis um so we uh had have been having a, a discussion about this a lot with um some of the video game workers in the uk um and there are some fantastic examples of of like i i guess what i would call them is like political with a small p games um rather than kind of you know we get these games from time to time that like tell you they're political um and can be quite kind of blunt about their politics um and instead what we've kind of been talking about being interested in is like did you ever play the the phone story game phones uh no i don't think so um so this is a game by uh a kind of radical game developer called mole industria and the game was designed to be played on an iphone and it basically goes through like a number of mini games that show you how your iphone was made so like exploitation oh, yeah. of Chinese factory workers, uh, Congolese miners and so on, um, and kind of uses it to kind of think through what effect you've had on the world by by buying an iPhone and unsurprisingly got banned from uh, from the Apple store pretty quickly. Yeah, for um, really bullshit reasons, something about being controversial or uh, content, something in there. Yeah, exactly. Some kind of breach of some guideline that had been written in legalese somewhere. Um, but we're actually running a game jam at the moment um, with game workers in, in the, the union here in the UK to make games about organizing. So cool. on the theme of organizing at work. Um, so hopefully there's going to be a whole load of, of, of short games that can think about what it means to kind of have a political game or to, yeah, to have a woke game, as you said. Have you um, heard of a... Um... A workers' co-op out of the US called the, the Glory Society. That rings a bell. Um, it's um, by the people who made, or the the main people who made, um, Bethany Hockenberry, Ren Farron, and Scott Benson. Uh yeah, yeah. So Scott Benson, I think, made the logo for the game work. Oh, hello. Sorry, have I lost you? Oh no, no, you're back. Yeah, he made the yeah. You were saying he made the the logo. For workers union yeah yeah for for game workers unite he he made the uh, the logo for it so he's been quite involved yeah he's um i only know him for his twitter presence and for hearing him hearing him on other podcasts and he's been yeah seems very uh he's been a smart guy and he's yeah. just um basically just started up a just a cooperative company like fully horizontal everyone shares all the money all the decisions practically just like you know this is the future liberals want and um yeah he's uh i think coming out with a game about rioting okay where you you play a a riot i, I think it does like a central character and there's like many other people you you get into like a big riot and you can go beat up cops it sounds sounds amazing it does yeah and and it's all like cute and 8-bit and um yeah it's um one of the 
rare things coming out of the games industry right now that seems really very cool. Uh, do you know of many other companies that are doing similar things, like being cooperative? Or um, I know Steam yeah. has their much vaunted horizontal structure, yeah. but that isn't worth shit. It's total nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there are lots of interesting political games being thought about and being made at the moment. Um, so there's an Australian developer called Colestia um, made this game that kind of about urban regeneration, which is basically a critique of gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a bunch of kind of nice experiments uh, being done, but a lot of them are obviously, well, unsurprisingly, not funded by large amounts of, uh, of publisher money because these are not expected to, to make huge profits. But I think, you know, the video games industry is one that's particularly success kind of susceptible to people turning to co-ops as a solution. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you can leave EA or a big publisher and you can go and set up your, your kind of small studio and you can work on a vanity project and, and so on. The problem is you still have to compete with those big companies, whether directly or indirectly. Um, and so my feeling with co-ops is always a bit kind of, you know, it's good for people who are able to escape, you know, people who have enough money to go and something up and so on, but you leave the rest of the industry untouched. Mm. Um, and I think really for many, many years, there's been a long running theme of people in the video games industry burning out yeah. and going and setting up their own company and saying, I'll do better. You know, I'll, I'll, we won't do crunch at our studio, you know, this time it'll be, it'll be better and so on. Um, And I think the organizing now is about people saying, actually, it's going to be better if I talk politics with people at work and we get into a union, Mm. um, which I think is a way more exciting prospect. Um, But, you know, still nice for some people to work in co-ops, hey? It is, yeah. I mean, you're right. It is. um, There have been a lot of cases I've known of where people quit big companies, made a, a really, like, critically acclaimed indie game that sold, like, few thousand copies while you know call of duty march edition sells (laughs) 10 million copies and everyone buys a game of pass for the year and it's like no comparison like the point is to you know get the culture win like the mass culture win win the culture war and yeah you do like you say you need you need to be inside for that you need to be like you know make it make a call of duty eastern front where you get to be uh fight fascists in the red army or something I think you already made that though. Um, so, lost my thread again. No worries. Cool, my notes disappeared. Um, so, if if there are through some miracle, some game developers listening to this, so, you know, some like people in the trenches at one of the big companies an EA or Bethesda what would you advise them to do about getting getting their workplace organized so I think there are a couple of things uh that people can do I think the first thing to do is to reach out to to Game Workers Unite um there are increasingly now uh chapters and branches of Game Workers Unite uh, all over the world um and then within countries there are lots and lots of regional groups springing up and then I think the other bit of advice is to say that 
you know, I think the experience I've had with video game workers in the UK is that no one knows how to organize in a new kind of work for, at first. Um, and so people will give people advice. They'll say, you know, this is the only way to organize or you need to do this or you need to do that. I think the, the bit of advice that I would give people is that when you do the work and you spend time with the colleagues, you, you know the, the ways to organize. Um, you know, when people go to breaks together or when there are social events or whatever it is, it's just experiment. Um, talk to people about politics at work, um, find shared grievances and so on. And that every big campaign always starts with the middle things. You know, those conversations during the smoking break or complaints in the corridor or whatever. Um, and that the first step can often be really, really scary, hey? Mm. Um, but until you try it, you you kind of you won't know what works doesn't. Cool. And um, to to finish off the episode, probably one of the most important questions is how do I beat uh, Junichio Asahana in uh, Sekiro? Because I've just been cutting away at him and nothing's happening. He gets me like two hits. It's just impossible. Is can any aspect of Marxism help me with that? Please. Well, you know, I think this is where if you see yourself as an individual and only having individual power, like, have you thought about collectively you can do it? Um, no, because only know, one person can use a controller. Uh, well, maybe maybe that's where you, you, you've fallen down. You know, maybe two people can, you need to, to, to get another person involved. No, I mean, in all seriousness, um, I wish I had had, this, had some time to get stuck on Sekiro like it sounds like you, you are. Um, oh, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm, that game is going to ruin me. It's just destroyed my life. It's drained all happiness from my life at the moment. <laughs> but um, when it's when you're actually like got some forward momentum, and you're like seeing all these beautiful temples and mountains and stuff, it's amazing. And when you like just stabbing random samurais and stuff, and you feel really powerful and strong, and it it, it is yeah very individualistic because you're just one guy against this entire army. But um, when you get stuck. As I have been in this one boss fight for two <laughs> months now, it's just it drains you. It's just it's wrecked me. I'm a broken shell of a man now. But um, yeah. So just go wait for the next Assassin's Creed, and hopefully that will that'll bring build me back up, make me feel strong again, and yeah, you know, my life can cut, be back on track at that point. So yeah, um, Jamie Woodcock and Marks at the Arcade is out uh, next week, did you say? Is it two yeah, weeks? it is. Yeah, next yeah. week. Yeah. Haymarket Books, and there'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, don't buy it on Amazon unless you ha absolutely have to. Uh, you know the drill by now. Um, yeah, if you have to, then fine. But yeah, feel bad about it. But um, I'm going to cap off the episode with a, a song that, that Lander would like if he was here, you know, if he wasn't recuperating. Uh, it's by a band called Spirit Adrift. They're like a uh, old school proggy epic doom kind of heavy metal kind of guys. Uh, their, their album art looks utterly stupid. There's like wolves and skulls and a ghost lady, and it's in space. And it is exactly the kind of absurd metal dork crap that you, that you love. You love to see it. And this is a um, a song called "Tortured by Time." It's uh, 
slim five minute little track and uh it's actually you know it's actually really solid you know i, I don't normally go for kind of stuff like this but um it's won me over and it's on an album a label called 20 bucks spin which you know if you've been listening to this show for any length of time you've heard us rave about them because they're like one of the true generally great labels out there and um yeah spirit drift very good uh very good band again if you're into that kind of thing i know it's polarizing heavy metal stuff whatever but uh come back next week uh next week we're going to be talking to hussein kazvani friend of the show from uh trash future which is yeah, easily the best british podcast out there at the moment uh, he's got a new book called uh follow me aki it's uh a inquiry into the light online lives of british muslims uh the, the times has written up it's it's getting big yeah so we we got in there and got that interview so you know uh we got we got more stuff coming up and we got um what's his name aaron bastani's uh fully automated luxury gay space communism book that's going to come out soon that may be great maybe maybe we'll have another you know socialist manifesto incident on our hands but uh either way it'll be a lot of fun and um yeah hit us up on twitter you know you know the draw by now leave reviews and yeah here's spirit adrift